Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode we meet the talents behind the animated adaptation of Raymond Briggs' Ethel and Ernest. Greetings friends, Ben Mitchell here for another Squiggly Animation Podcast, joined by Steve Henderson. Good day Steve. Good day, Ben. How are you? Terrific! I dare say brimming with the trademark vim and vigour I'm so known for. Greeting the chilly autumn air with a smile on my bonds and music in my heart. Good. Just as long as I tamp down any thoughts of November 8th in my head. What's November 8th? The, <laughs> the end of civilization. <laughs> You're doing a better job of, of tamping it down than I am. I'm suppressing it to, to, to like... A little lump of depression in the back of my skull. But apart from uh, the impending end of civilization, Ben, it was nice to take the uh, weekend off uh, to go to Dunleary to the uh, Dublin Animation Film Festival. And uh, it's very considerate of them to make it just a single day this year, just so me and Jen uh, could run around and uh, and enjoy uh, everything the festival had to offer in a day. Uh, Duke Johnson was there, um, and we've got... Uh, I'm sure we've got a few bits and bobs up on Squiggly for people to enjoy uh, if they want to catch up with that particular festival. But uh, yeah, well done to Fanula uh, and the team for uh, keeping up the uh, the animation celebration over there in Ireland. And now you're back in uh, rainy old UK. What's captivating you animation-wise? There's been a few developments in since we lasted the podcast. Uh, DreamWorks have released a trailer for a upcoming. Uh, film called Boss Baby. Have you seen Boss Baby, Ben? I've seen the little square framed Facebook trailer without sound, and I, I swiped away rather swiftly. <laughs> it could be uh, it could be frightfully witty. It could be, um, couldn't it? I'm feeling a little spoiled, I think, by what has been a very very strong year for animated features. Yes, that I and it's that it's knowing I think that the really strong animated features of this year are going to be inevitably in the shadow of the sausage parties and the boss babies and the troll doll shenanigans, Mm. emoji mishap and all sorts of wonderment. And yet some really, really tremendous works of art, uh, you know, struggling to get distribution, it seems. I mean, you could say, oh, this is a frightfully original idea if you've not seen... (laughs) Any animated TV shows of the last twenty years? Well, well, this is it, isn't it? It's, it's Stewie Griffin joke, the movie. Yeah, is he um, very erudite and articulate in a way that a baby wouldn't be? Well, there, there you go. That, that, that's why it's so funny, Ben. <laughs> that's, that's what you get from it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's the film itself. I mean, here we go. We were talking there, just you were just talking there about the films that are out this year, an incredibly strong year for feature animation, um, the stuff that we love, the stuff that we're looking forward to, to seeing, the stuff that we dream would get this level of exposure and in front of everybody. This film is clearly not made for us. <laughs> this 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 boss baby film, the the you know, trolls and stalks and everything else are not made for us. This Boss Baby film, I believe, is based on a on a book, um, like a, a children's book. But I think 
perhaps that's that's where this kind of idea needs to stick and stay maybe um you know it made a, a cute and clever um a book you know incredibly well illustrated book but um the need to translate it to animation is perhaps and, and to turn you know a a, a a book which is a few pages long into a hour and a half feature film. You know what are you actually doing there? What 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 are you doing with that idea? This, the, God, this is depressing, isn't it? Bloody hell! But yeah, I'm still waiting for for people to pay pay attention to the uh, the Red Turtles and the Ethel and Ernests and the uh, you know my life as a courgette of the world. Uh, I have to say, I read a pretty interesting review of the Red Turtle. I don't know if you saw this. This was uh, Sydney Bauman's review of the film. Oh no, not at all. It's pretty funny. She didn't like it very much. No. Uh, <laughs> and I've had, I find that interesting because I haven't had a single negative word about this film. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I it was sort of overdue. Is maybe sounds a bit mean, but. When everyone is so like unrelentingly gushing about a film, mm. it does make it, I think, a little harder for the audience, perhaps, to take it impartially. Yeah. And so I was kind of wait because I, I personally disagree with a lot of the um, issues, I guess, she had. But, of course, she's looking at it from a very different perspective that I would. So I found it very interesting. It was, you know, to, to read something that's actually quite honest and not necessarily gushing. You know, I've, I've certainly not seen anything like that leveled against, you know, My Life is a Courgette or Ethel and Ernest. And I wonder if when something is kind of so anticipated or so it makes such a, a good first impression on most people who are, you know, at these festivals, reporting on these festivals, doing these reviews, if then that maybe makes people a little hesitant to put another opinion across within this very sort of niche area of cinema. Within like general mainstream cinema, it's quite common, I think, for there to be a couple of like really negative reviews that are actually kind of contrived to combat the overwhelming gushingness and attitude toward a film, mm-hmm. which is something I think we'll return to in a minute. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I'll, have a, I'll give you a little read of some of this stuff. Um, uh, da, 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 da. It was hard for me to not view The Red Turtle in the context of 2D animator struggles. It brought to the surface this pressing question. What is 2D animation the most effective at doing? The film simultaneously fails and succeeds at making a case for why 2D animation is great. Let's start with its premise. And then she talks a little bit about the plot of the film and how much she likes father and daughter, which I think is something that everyone can get on board with. A 90-minute film requires some connection between its audience and the film's characters. Watching The Red Turtle, I was given no slightest idea about the psychology or motivations of the main character. I couldn't feel for the man because I didn't know who he was, nor where he was coming from. So I was unsympathetic to his attempts to get away from the island. Him hitting the turtle turned me off completely. (laughs) Uh, And when the metaphor finally revealed itself, I was cold to its charms. This is a bit spoilery, I guess, as well. So maybe if people haven't seen The Red Turtle, they might want to skip up ahead a couple of minutes if they don't want to... You've already um, spoiled it, Ben. <laughs> on the other hand, I noted a tension between the film being a fairy tale metaphor with surreal elements, uh, a dead turtle turns into a woman, and its aspirations be realistic. The tension became obvious to me when the man and the turtle woman started to live together and had only one child. 
One would realistically expect that a man and a woman living on a deserted island without contraceptives would have at least 12 to 16 offspring. Did they have sex only once? I couldn't help but ponder. Or is he pulling out? (laughs) Signe Barwood, ladies and gentlemen. I can guarantee she's literally the only person who thought that while watching the film. I do, I do adore her. She's wonderful. It must be stressful. I mean, let's let's give the guy a break. It must be stressful living on a desert island. I did think the point actually about like not knowing anything about who he was. It didn't bother me at the time, but it's an interesting point. It definitely made the plight of say Tom Hanks's character uh, in Castaway. A little bit more effective, I think, because that wasn't a, there was no enchantment to that film. That was more about like peril mm. and survival. And so, if you knew nothing about this guy, then yeah, that would be a much harder watch, I think. But knowing that there's something that he's he wants to return to, and having an idea of what that is, uh, definitely helps. You know, a live action movie like that. This to me, I mean, this film just struck me more as a fairy tale where the knowing the specifics of their procreational activities or his previous life before the island and everything like that wasn't a major concern. I, I liked not knowing, though, in a way. I liked the way that I didn't know what time he was from. I didn't know what era he was from. And there were slight uh, tells every now and then. When he's imagining, like, a quartet, they're the ways that you can tell what era this film is in. Because it's timeless. You don't know if it's he's a castaway from 2016 from uh you know uh 1066 or you know 1550 there are no kind of tells there are the odd flourishes here and there which give you an idea and the mystery of that kind of sustained me as well you know and, and I wanted to see what would happen if he escaped how he would escape I would agree with her about the the idea of the turtle transforming and the charm there and everything that, that was a little bit lost on me but it was by no means a deal-breaker. Well, it's very possible that Boss Baby will indeed retain these same charming elements. <laughs> Time will tell. Yeah, so uh, that's the that's the kind of the blockbuster news uh, since we did the last podcast, Ben. The TV news since we did the last podcast is that The Simpsons have released uh, a couch gag in VR. They're, they're embracing VR. Now, this is... Uh in association with the Google series, Spotlight Stories. It is, yeah. So if you've got the Google Spotlight Stories app, uh, you can download that alongside, uh, you know, Glenn Keane's uh, duet or um, uh, Patrick Osborne's Pearl. So, um, yeah, you've got the Simpsons now uh, joining those ranks with Planet of the Couches. I think that's a pretty nice um, validation that it's been a good exercise for them. I mean, you know, I, I can't speak... As of yet, on the quality of the gag, but I have found that the Simpsons couch gags are the strength of the Simpsons these days. It's pretty much all I know of the last four years of the Simpsons. If you will, Ben, it is exactly how you would imagine a Simpsons couch gag to be incorporated into a new technology. Was it as good as the live Homer Simpson Q&A thing? Uh, I don't think anything could be as good as the live Homer Simpson Q&A thing when Homer wasn't Homer for three minutes or however long it was. But yeah, it's uh, Planet of the Couches, uh, so it's obviously a um, Planet of the Apes parody. Um, 
But you you look around. Uh, the idea, obviously, with VR is that you look around and you look around and Ralph Wiggum will be there to say a, a funny little quip or you look up at the ceiling, there'll be something there. You'll turn around from where the main action is and, and uh, Mo will be there. It's that, you know, with a, with a a ready with a gag. Uh, it's that kind of thing. Um, you just have to put the effort into looking around for all these little jokes and things like that. That's great. The Simpsons is now making you look for your own f-ing jokes. Yeah, well, I think we've been, just doing been doing that for the last for years. ten years. <laughs> uh, take that, billionaires! <laughs> we did that joke in chorus, Ben. <laughs> we are basically a married couple at this point. <laughs> so yeah, the Simpsons uh, are. Uh, uh, there's my uh, Joe Quimby impression. <laughs> the Simpsons embracing VR. So that's that's good. That's good news, really, isn't it, for VR and uh, for the future of animation uh, on different formats and stuff like that I'm, I'm always interested to see wake how well they do the job of the 2d in the 3d environment because usually it just looks like you're seeing a bunch of flat planes hmm. i remember the lies autobiography did quite a lot of very sort of flat animation in these uh 3d environments i'm interested to see how much consideration they put into like the depth within the actual character animation it's good. Uh, there's a few kind of uh, there's a few bits in where there's a little bit of floating here and there, but it is very well uh, married to to VR. The cuts are a little bit disorient, you know, disorientating, but um, you get used to that quick enough. That's interesting because I remember that was a concern with Pearl mm. that it's a very jump cut heavy uh, film, but because it's within one environment and the angle doesn't change, that actually it turned out to be quite smooth. Yeah. So are they like cuts to like a completely different environment? Uh, to different environments, but also to like different angles from the same kind of um, right. scene. That I imagine would be a bit more jarring. Yeah. But, oh, there you go. Simpsons continuing to find excuses to get us to talk about it. So um, are you on Facebook, Ben? Facebook? Facebook. I think that's uh, something that's in my rotation of procrastination activities. Yeah. Well, have have you seen that the world's greatest animation's been released this this last few weeks on on Facebook? He said jovially. So many people that I I genuinely love and admire and hold in very high regard have been so moved by this film. Yeah. Moved to tears, I dare say. Some of them have proclaimed as such. And I don't know. I guess I've just had the the ultimate that last like square inch of my heart that didn't have a cold callus over it. I guess that's finally formed. I believe the film you're speaking of is Borrowed Time. Absolutely. Is that the name of it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this film screen encounters to complete indifference, save for some appreciation for very very sophisticated technical animation on show character animation is great the environments are very uh it's a splendid film technically absolutely and pretty much everyone came out everyone i spoke to so it's not everyone who went to encounters but a good 10 to 20 people where this film directly came up made the same point is that it was pretty flimsy in the story department okay and it was that the actual thrust of the film was a pretty obvious concept and you would have to. It would be a, a disingenuous man or woman to come away from it proclaiming they were genuinely moved, and yet it went online, 
and it's become the the absolute like darling of the uh, social media share this film mm-hmm. world, and everyone is completely bowled over by it. And I wonder what happened. It's odd how that works, isn't it? Between how what the one state of affairs and the other. Like, do, were we just all in a bad mood that day? I was, you know, and I was moved. I, I will say that things move me. I am capable of feeling emotion. And especially things that deal with parental ties and stuff like that. That's a, you know, it's an easy way to kind of get to someone. And I think that it's done effectively in many, many mediums. All I could get from this film was an admiration for the technical side of it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. What, uh, what do you think I'm missing? And what I dare ask is, uh, is your take on it? Uh, I thought it was a well-made film. Um, it's clear from viewing it that the the people making it put an awful lot of love and effort um, and talent into it. And I the, the 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 main problem I have with it is its reception and the way that it has been received and proclaimed as this amazing Pixar short. Of course, it has an association with Pixar but it's not a Pixar short. And as you know, uh, with, with us running squiggly, uh, we we kind of view, or at least I view, um, outlets that aren't specialists in animation, when they report on animation, if they get something wrong, it, it winds me up. And this is what, what's wound me up, is people saying, you know, the, the latest the latest Pixar short will move you to tears. Wait, so that's the thing that bothers you most of all, is that it's being misattributed to Pixar? Yes, aside from the fact that the story is average at best. I think if you're looking at Pixar talent, and you're looking at, at Pixar talent flying the coop and presenting something with a complete understanding of film and narrative and, and presenting something absolutely beautiful, you have to turn around and look at um, Robert Kondo and Daisuke Tsumi and The Dam Keeper. That's where you get a good kind of Pixar alumni uh, film. This one is a good film, but I can imagine walking out of a screening and feeling nothing for it. I, di- I have not returned to the film in my mind's eye, apart from now when we're gri- grouting about it, um, I've not returned to the film in my mind's eye and thought again and again and again about the the subtle nuances of the film or the character development or any of that stuff. It is an average film. The spin on it, I think, that people have been reporting on is that it's yeah that it's it's gone to a much more somber place than Pixar would ever dare. Well, I tell you something, I've been moved not to tears, but to that, like, feeling in your sinuses of, like, near tears by Pixar movies. Absolutely, I will admit that. Not just as a kid, but, you know, there have been a couple over the, I guess, about 20 years of their, you know, history of making very, very good feature films, where they got to me. What part of Cars Two got to you, Ben? Which which part are you talking about? When he, ha- when he had the, uh, when he accidentally put in unleaded... <laughs> so I was like, oh man, that's sad. And I, again, I think that maybe the reason why Pixar films are so effective when they do that is that they they there is a kind of balance of darkness and light. Or sometimes you're moved because it's not something unpleasant or sad. It's it's something that is just very moving. Mm. It's, it's you know emotional. Uh, I've seen other people be very very moved by scenes that didn't particularly get to me but the opening of up that's it's a 
pretty hard one. Because that, I think, maybe as you get older, there's something about that that kind of uh, digs its uh, claws in, mm. you know. There's a lovely Louis C.K. bit about, like, how love is such a sham, and he's talking about, like, even in the best possible case scenario where you meet the person, you know, like, in most situations, you'll get split up or get divorced or you have kids and get divorced, whatever. Even if you, like, break past all those hurdles and you make it and you're in love with each other your entire lives, then one of you is going to die. <laughs> and then you're just old and alone and sad. <laughs> That's the best case scenario <laughs> of love. So in that respect, I think that opening sequence of Up was very, very moving. And, you know, various other little things here and there over the years. I'm not going to blame that animation can't reach me. This film, I don't know, I just, maybe it's the setting. Maybe it's that we only have five minutes in this universe more or less. To, it kind of, I think, goes a little bit back to Signe's point about the Red Turtle not knowing enough about uh, the character. You get this little glimpse of the past and his relationship. I like, I mean, I like the way the scene plays out, the cliff and the, you know, it's a it's a great little, like, tragic scene, but moving? Eh. Yeah. The action sequences are quite good. Yeah, well, they're all great. The whole, all the, the whether it be very, very, you know, intense action or very subtle, uh, quiet, understated performance. It's flawless animation. Mm. Or if there are flaws, I'm not the person to pick them out because, of course, CG isn't my my medium. So maybe people who are very well-versed in CG would be a little more critical of like the technical side of the film, the look of the film. But yeah, it's it's technically great, but people, it seems like the, the, the real virtues of the film, which are its technical achievements, are being overlooked a general audience comes across a film like this, they think it's going to be cartoony and for kids. Wow, this is actually quite dark, or it's quite deep or sad or tragic. And that would get to them. I understand that. What I don't get is people I've known for years and years who've worked in this industry and think it's like the most amazing film they've ever seen. Yeah. And it just represents, I think, so much of how I look differently at the world of animation and animated shorts. I mean, off the heels of having just, you know, written a book about it, like, it's obviously something that's a huge part of my life. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to describe or explain or reconcile with myself when one that is so beloved by, you know, the world at large, whether that be sincere or not, I can't really view in that way. Yeah. But a Don Hertzfeld stick figure... The end of uh, It's Such a Beautiful Day is a, is a harrowingly, emotionally, like, gut-wrenching ending mm. to me. That monologue at the end, and that montage, and all sorts of moments in the film. It's a f***ing stick man. Yeah. You know what I mean? But what an amazing storyteller yeah. uh, that stick man is in the hands of. Give him a name, give him a life, give him something to cling on to. Yeah. Give him something to lose. You experience a loss, and you're, you're there, you're taken away. So I doubt the people who made this film are going to happen upon this podcast unless some some tattletale tells them, hey, these British guys are bashing you. If they do, I think I hope that they would hear the 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 praise that you know we would give towards its achievements in other regards, and that the criticisms, you know, like you you said, they are more about like how it's been handled by the public. But then the way it's been handled by the public is probably very important to the filmmakers. It's probably a very validating, very much-valued element of the whole process. So The thing that has been winding me up more than anything else, it's a great film. Making any film, completing any animated film, no matter what guise it's in, is an achievement. There's no... 
There's no doubt about that. And every single animator I would hope that does that would get the same rush of seeing their thing move, seeing it, seeing it, you know, come to life, and seeing it in front of an audience as. I'm sure we've had in the past, Ben. Um, your film has been screened all over Germany and Switzerland and stuff, so you've not seen it <laughs> recently. But I'm sure you can hear on the on the wind the the subtle gasp of German audiences or the the, the laugh at the end uh, when they've seen your film and appreciate that. And that's what we, you know, that's what filmmakers make these films for. Well, people get in touch as well. Like that's a an element of it, certainly. Like you don't just listen to the wind. No, I mean the wind is good. Yeah. Don't get me. I'm not going to be a f- wind basher all of a sudden. I don't want to burn that bridge too. But you you get a palpable sense of what a film is doing mm-hmm. when it's out there. The the article that got to me about borrowed time was this headline: mm-hmm. "Borrowed Time: Pixar Animators' New Short Film Is Not for Kids." Yeah. Um, Why feel the need? You, I've had, we've done this rant before, Ben. We're going to do it again. <laughs> Why feel the need to disclaim? that an animated film is not for kids. Yeah. That is what always gets me. Always gets to me. It moves me to tears more than the (laughs) films themselves. (laughs) Like, I have people who like, you know, oh, yeah, animation, so... Well, you do, like, um, CBBs, stuff like that. I do do a lot of Mm. stuff for kids, I have to say. Like, I'm on a preschool thing at the moment, and, like, generally speaking, there is more work in series for younger audiences. But the bulk of the freelance work is corporate films and TV commercials and very occasionally music videos. Mm. And fortuitously, I was having a conversation with someone and an advert came on that was very heavily animated. And I'm like, well, this is an example of the kind of thing I do as well. And they sort of looked at it and it had never occurred to them that that was animation. Like, that's the, the weirdest part of all. Like, they see it but because it's not presented, they just think it's like some sub form of advertising. Like the process for people, I think sometimes just doesn't register that there are people who have to do that and do it in the same way that they would animate Sarah and duck and their hijinks or Hey Dougie or whoever, you know, it's someone sitting down applying a very specific craft to an audience that is mostly women who have thrush, you know, some (laughs) headache pill or some, one of my favorite, um, this was in, America, I was on holiday. It was a wonderful, like, pill advert for a weight loss pill. And the animation was like this giant version of the pill is shooting rays at the model of the fat woman, and she's becoming a skinny woman, right? As the big pill is shooting rays at it. Like, this is what this fat blocker pill will will do. <laughs> right. And underneath that, gr- that animated graphic was the word dramatization. <laughs> So, you know, I, I could appreciate that you would be disappointed if you bought this pill and it wasn't gigantic and shot rays at you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they they actually have to do that in the States. So. As well as the half hour of, like, side effects they read. Have you ever seen, like, American medical commercials? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, this, this pill will most likely cause blindness and impotence, <laughs> and your children will never look at you again. And... Warning, your arms may fall off. So it's, you know, when we're not doing children's TV, we're fueling the pharmaceutical industry and then nefarious evil schemes. Is that mm. for kids? I think not. <laughs> Borrowed time, uh, what can I say apart from all the whining I just did? Uh, well played, they made a film and uh, it looks great. And if people found it moving, who am I to judge? This, is a, this has been a good therapy session, Ben. We've come to a realisation 
not everything's for us, whether it be Boss Baby or Borrowed Time. Now, speaking of, of actual moving animation, a film that's coming out this week, Ethel and Ernest. Yeah. Yeah, this one I found pretty touching as well. Yeah. We talked quite a bit about it recently, and the bibliography of Mr. Raymond Briggs. He's someone who is very good, I think, at capturing broad concepts and, and conveying them in a very sort of emotionally driven way. I think the fact that this is a biographical slash autobiographical document and that it's been translated to a feature film with, I think, quite a degree of fidelity. I haven't read the book in a little while, but it seemed like the film was a pretty faithful adaptation. Very faithful. And sometimes that's the way to go. Like, stick with the, the real part of the matter. I appreciate that sometimes, you know, like with, with Boss Baby, probably <laughs> they've had to add a bunch of extra stuff to fill in, you know, make it a feature-length film. The Little Prince, which we talked about a few episodes back, they made a whole other film that then has the adaptation of The Little Prince as a part of it. The Magic Light people, they take those storybooks, and they do a very good job of, like, expanding them just enough to, mm. like, a nice half-hour block. They, they, they embellish, I think, more than just arbitrarily add, like, new stuff that happens even the original snowman based on the raymond briggs uh, book in the book the uh, the snowman comes to life as he as he does in the film and and takes uh, takes the boy for a flight but they go to brighton pier have a look at the end of the pier and they go home whereas in the film um back then tvc uh, as it was added the bit where they go and meet santa claus and and turn it into more of a kind of christmas film as opposed to a as opposed to it being like a, a winter's tale, which did in, it did incredibly well. You know that was a good ad- adaptation. You know that was a good way of of, of putting together, uh, adding uh, little bits, embellishing little bits. But the Deathful and Earnest is remarkably faithful with a few extra little bits here and there, but the majority of it, especially where it counts, comes directly from the page. And I say especially where it counts because there are some moments in the book uh, that are extremely important um, that have been lifted from the page and put on screen. Uh, And those are the moments where I nearly cried. And I don't cry at films, animated or otherwise. I'm a robot then. Uh, My emotion chip has burnt out long ago. Um, But I felt like I'd been kicked in the chest. You know that feeling you were talking about earlier on in your nose? I get it in my chest. Yeah. I felt like I was ready to blub. You've seen the film, Ben, haven't you? You've mm-hmm. you've, you've uh, watched it as I have. What did you think to the film? Uh, well, I th- like I said before, I thought it was great. I thought it did a great job of taking the original story. I thought that it's, it's so overwhelmingly British, mm. which is a nice thing to see in a feature. I think the uh, the lovely kind of exchanges between this couple as they grow old together, and their kind of take on the world as it progresses. The world through the eyes of this couple that are in love in a very kind of un-movie-like way. So it's a very real life coming together and, and living a, a life together. You know, that old Louis C.K. bit again, in a way. <laughs> yeah, I just and the animation I thought was tremendous. And this is something that I, I again, because I'm 2D, so I was watching with perhaps a more critical eye. I thought they did a lovely job. The level of detail and the uh, the backgrounds and the environments and the just how much that contributes to the feel of the film, I think was uh, was very very well done. I, I particularly like the house. Mm-hmm. How the house was made as a as an extra character. I think 
and it being the setting of the well of the 20th century really the the story starts in the uh, in the 20s and goes right the way through to the 70s so a, a decent chunk of that time is presented really through through this couple mm. I think I thought Jim Broadbent was excellent. Yeah. Uh, if we're talking about the actors, I didn't. As, as a sort of a man in his sixties, seventies, he played the young uh, Ernest really well. Hmm. I don't think there was any kind of audio trickery there, but he actually sounded like a young man. So, any standout moments in the film for you? Standout moments specifically were more the quiet moments. I think hmm. the quiet exchanges, like I mentioned before, uh, there's a lovely scene when he's trying to explain what being gay is to his wife. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. As like this <laughs> this new thing that the kids have invented. <laughs> and the way she receives that information in this very kind of like, not completely befuddled, but like, oh, well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was lovely. Little things like that, I think, were, um, were particularly nice. I like the way they work together. Uh, him as this kind of, you can tell right at the beginning, he's like a real staunch socialist and she's mm-hmm. aspirations of of being middle class and and she's so happy about um Raymond's progression into the best schools and and things like that uh and so when they're, they're up against one another uh with that kind of at one another arguing about politics arguing about the the labor party or or you know of the time or winston churchill things like that i like that i like that kind of little tension that they've got between one another because over over all that there's still that love between the the pair of them that kind of you know not like a sort of a gushy hollywood love but like a kind of yeah this is how a married couple is Mm -hmm. and i really like that i really thought that was uh very well played, very well done. And that comes from, obviously, the original source material as well. Um, and from life, obviously, because this is based directly from uh, the author Raymond Briggs' parents. So um, it is a pretty genuine story. So we're talking to the director in this episode, yes? Yeah, Roger Mainwood, um, a guy who's been on the animation scene for, for quite a while. He uh, animated on uh, Heavy Metal, which is completely different oh, wow. from Phil and Ernest. <laughs> uh, I think he also did the Autobahn video from um, the Kraftwerk Autobahn video from uh, Hallison Batchley years and years ago, if I remember correctly. Um, so he's been on the scene for a while. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think we have an article about that. I think one of Steve Cavs' retrospectives is on Roger's work with Hallison Batchelor for the video. Yeah, that's something to just kind of search out if you want to learn a little bit more about his previous work. Yeah, Roger was very involved in getting this film made, and he's he's maintained a fantastic blog about his progression of making the film back way right back from like 2011 when he started uh, started the film. The film actually came out for, by uh, by John Coates, who was the producer of of TVC and a friend of of Raymond Briggs. And uh, John Coates worked on uh, the original Beatles uh, television series, Yellow Submarine, um, When the Wind Blows. He's this producer that has always been a, a large part of the London animation scene and getting things getting things made. Um, and when uh, Raymond released Ethel in 1998, I believe John was straight to his house. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get him to turn it into adapt it immediately into an animated film. 
And uh, as with most things, such as the sequel to The Snowman, The Snowman and the Snow Dog, it took Raymond a few years to to agree to John. Um, but unfortunately, John passed away, but he passed on all the work and effort that he had put in to Lupus mm. and to Roger Mainwood. And as soon as Roger was attached, it was a, you know, it's good to go, really. Mm. He's the guy with the vision to to make this thing happen. And, and Lupus, obviously, the studio that are very respectful of, of Raymond's work and... Uh, They've done a tremendous job with it. And subsequent to Heavy Metal, he did go on to work on prior Raymond Briggs adaptations like The Snowman and When the Wind Blows and Father Christmas and The Snow Dog more recently. So he's definitely steeped in that world of Raymond Briggs, that style, that mood. Yes. Uh, He's definitely the right man for the job Mm -hmm. in terms of his prior experience. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm interested to hear what he has to say. Shall we hand it over to him? Let's indeed. Perhaps we could start with Raymond. Uh, yeah. Let us know a little bit about his involvement in the film and, and how he worked with you as a director on his very personal story. That's right. Um, it's the first film that, of Raymond's that he's been executive producer on because it's such a personal story, obviously. He wanted to have a hand in making sure that we did it correctly. Uh, it took a while for him to agree to let the book be made into a film. But I think he trusted us because, um, as you may know, the project started out at TBC with John Coates. Um, and TBC, of course, has done Snowman, When the Wind Blows, and Father Christmas. So uh, I think we're trusted, we were trusted with doing it. Um, and yes, I worked very closely with Raymond on, on the script. Uh, he's, he's a, as we know, a very fine illustrator, but he's also an extremely gifted writer, which people tend to forget. Uh, Very sparse, you know, precise, short sentences that he does, which took me a while to realise and get into. He he pulled me up a number of times with, you know, too many long sentences with ands in the middle. He hardly ever does that. Um, And just just the way his parents spoke, I I didn't quite get right on a few occasions, but it was few and far between, I suppose. Uh, we had a very close and enjoyable working relationship with that film, you know, uh, and, and uh, he absolutely loves the film, um, he can't get through it without crying as you can imagine, uh, he, has to, he, he says he has to go and have a lie down after each viewing. You know. oh. it's, it's the one book he has by his bedside table uh, and he always dips into it, so he's doing the same with the film, he has, he has it on an iPad and he just has a little look every now and then. So, um, if we've satisfied Raymond, then I think we've done our job, because once he's satisfied, then I think we're on safe ground and the world can now take it on board as well. Excellent. Um, speaking about, uh, continuing talking about Raymond and the style of the book, very distinctive, obviously, that, yes. that very distinctive Briggsian style. Yeah. Um, and translating that into animation, but also translating it into CG in some parts as well. That's right. How was, how was that, that transition? That was probably one of the biggest challenges of, of doing the film, because um, it's a very textured look. Um, you know, we have some examples here. Uh, and in the old days, when we were doing Snowman, I worked on the Snowman as an animator. Uh, we did it on cell uh, with waxy crayons and 
uh, we even use a kebab stick to tr uh, you know, scrape back the wax to give that textured oily look uh, to imitate the crayon that's in the in the book of the snowman. Um, the Ethel and Ernest book is slightly different in style. It's more watercolory, and um, our art director Robin Shaw uh, spent a long time trying to develop the style uh, with some success, and then, and then you know steps back, steps forward. But we eventually got there through a process of pushing mats, th uh, pushing texture through mats, which is um, you know a technique that has been used before, but. There were some subtleties to what we did uh, with the line work, using the line work to create blurs and so forth. But um, maybe it's done before, but I can't think of an example. And and it's given it a pretty unique look, I think. Um, and that technique was translated into all the CG elements, you know, the cars, the planes, and so forth. So that the whole thing became a unified whole. And the important thing was to have the characters sitting in the background completely so that they don't just, you know, stand out from a very painterly background. The backgrounds, of course, are another huge element of, of the look of it. And uh, uh, Robin did a lot of the setups for the for this shots um, as a guide for the people who did the backgrounds, which were done over in Luxembourg at Studio 352. Uh, and they've done an absolutely fantastic job um, and produced some really, really rich backgrounds. A lot of the um, interiors of the house uh, have very textured wallpaper on, which we, we, we created, you know, painted like this, and then mapped them in onto the, um, onto the layouts. Uh, we built the houses the house and the street actually and also parts of London in CG but not full CG what you see in the film isn't full CG it's we, we drew from that so that we had all the perspective right uh, it saved quite a bit of time also and it meant you could move the camera around to get exactly the right angle you wanted all the time um, so lots of lots of aids you know modern aids that we had uh, that we didn't have in, in the old days. But I think the look of it still comes out as a very hand-crafted look, which it is, basically. Uh, we've just used modern techniques to uh, help us a bit. There's a, there's a certain part of the film, a couple of parts of the film almost have a kind of, kind of uh, uh, it's not called a haunting stillness, particularly when uh, Passing away, she's on the table, mm. which is a very poignant moment in the book. Mm. Uh, and the same way, uh, when Ernest uh, passes away, yeah. they seem almost exactly the same as yeah. in the book. Now, the rest of the animation is slightly different. Obviously, it has to has to be in order to be animated, mm. uh, and it's done, you know, a tremendous success. But these particular moments mm. look exactly like they're straight from the book. Can you talk us through that decision? Yeah. Well, there were some key moments like that one of Ethel uh, on the trolley in the hospital that we decided to keep here because they were so intensely personal to Raymond and uh, we didn't really want, with all due respect to Studio 352, uh, for them to be in someone else's hands that didn't you know, fully understand 
was right in the groove with Raymond on it. And um, someone here called Martin Oliver, uh, who is now the art director on Bear Hunt, uh, did that particular background and several others. A lot of the Paddington Station ones he also did the basics for. Um, and yes, it, it, it was, it couldn't be anything other than an absolute copy of what Raymond did. I mean, Ra Raymond found doing that illustration extremely uh, challenging and disturbing, as you can imagine. And he, ha he had to do it, uh, he did it in 15 minute bursts. He said, you know, uh, he couldn't do it just continuously throughout the whole day. Um, and it has um, an incredibly powerful feel to it, doesn't it? Um, yes. uh, we, when, we, when he finished, when Martin finished it, Peter Dodd and Robin and I just stood around in quite a lot of silence and just talked about you know, people who we know who've died and that, that experience. Uh, and that's really you know, the essence of, of the book in a way, life and death, and, um, how people deal with it. Uh, so yeah, that, that was quite a moment in the production. Yeah. Uh, I appear to have taken you back there, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Um, sorry, what do you think it is that, that, that um, these books have been translated numerous times? Yes. Um, you've been involved in them yourself? Yeah. Do you think there's a, a, there's a certain quality to Raymond Briggs' work that translates so well to animation? Well, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I suppose part of it is because he does them as, as comic strip, you know, graphic novels, and so they're almost storyboarded for us. <laughs> He's done quite a bit of the work, in a way. Um, although, obviously, there's a lot of adaptation that we have to do, linking parts up and so forth, um, and making it more... It's especially with this one, more cinematic, yeah. with breakout moments, um, with the wall sequence, which uh, the same. I, I suppose that that does happen in When the Wind Blows, where you get the cartoony strip, and then you turn a page, and there's one huge submarine under the water. So I suppose that does work. Um, why do they work as films? Um, yes, it's, it's just. Subject matter is so filmic. You know, they just <laughs> they work. Father Christmas and Snowman were well, at least half hours. But, although Snowman was expanded out, as you know. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't got the answer really. Uh, I suppose it's um, one of those uh, questions that might never get answered. Yeah. To interpretation, yeah. really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they, they obviously appeal to the British sensibility as well. Uh, a lot, and, uh, and he's very funny, and very moving, and very honest. What more do you want in the film? <laughs> yes. Perfect. Um, I know that you've been maintaining a blog since 2011. Oh, yes. uh, so this particular story has got me quite attached to it, I would imagine, by now. What, what is it about the story that you looked at and went, that's one I want to get my teeth into? Yeah, I know this story. Um, well, it was again. It was John Coates who just phoned me up uh, while I was making a TV series and said, oh, "Come and have lunch," as he always did. And I've got this little thing I want to show you. Uh, and um, what do you think of it? And I had seen the book before, 
But I hadn't actually bought it for some reason, but I had flipped through it and thought, wow, I wonder if that will ever get made as a film. And obviously it connected with me straight away, you know, you can, there's very few people who read it who, who aren't completely taken in by it. Um, it's, it's so clever because it covers such a sweep of history with such economy. Uh, it's a social history, you know, for schools, they'll, they'll love using it in schools to educate children about how things were. I mean, just working on the film, um, uh, it's extraordinary. I forget how the youngsters these days <laughs> uh, can't, you know, they don't remember an old-fashioned phone that you have to lift up and dial. It's quite a revelation to some of them. And the box brownie camera we had, you know, there were people in between on it. I said, well, what, what is this that I'm drawing? And I said, it's a camera. Because yeah. um, they're all on their phones these days. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but but it's, it's lovely that, that we have such a generation of people working on the film from you know, the octogenarians. Well, actually, June Brown, who's one of the voices in her, in her 90s, I think, to you know, graduates straight out of college, who's, it was their first film that they were working on. So, you know, early 20s. So, everyone is involved. It's fantastic. And, and, you know, the commitment of people was, was unbelievable on it. Every, everyone was behind the project. Um, and, and that's obviously what you're, you're always looking for on a film. So, there were no grumbles, I don't think. <laughs> I mean, it was incredibly hard work because we had such a short time to do it in. Uh, and, and, I must admit there were times when we all thought this isn't going to get done. And I've been in some tight spots in other productions before, and you know, but this one felt really, really tricky. But we got there, and um, I'm really proud of what everyone did on it. And very grateful to have all that talent coming together. Do you have a favourite moment? Favourite moment in work? Uh, there were so many. Um, I mean, it depends what you're going for. Visually, there's some wonderful shots at the beginning of the film, which is always great to have, um, outside the ballroom in particular, which is a purely made up one by me, so I'm pleased about those. Uh, I mean, the humour side of it, I'd go for the ALF sequence, uh, Trouble with the Wife. That's brilliantly animated. Um, and uh, for the, you know, poignant moments, obviously, it's some of those scenes at the end are just amazing. Mm. Uh, again, very sensitively animated. We kept those in the house as well to do. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. And s some of this wartime stuff is, is incredible visually you know, to look at. And how did you find, with, with Ray as exec producer, how did you find his kind of involvement in the film and, and, and what speak to uh, Miller and Ruth about his particular involvement with, with the way things looked and the way things kind of specific elements of the film. Yeah. Uh, well, I actually I should have brought it with me. I, we had a, a letter from him um, saying about the thing, how, how pleased he was with everything about it, and uh, in, and even the stuff that we'd created, you know, added in, uh, and the detail of it. Uh, he was amazed that, uh, for example, the, the servant bell, the service bells that ring at the beginning, you know, that, that was added in. And, and just little 
details of action, like his mum you know, wetting the handkerchief when he's getting his school uniform and wiping his cheek, which all mothers do, but he, he seemed to think he was unique in that respect for some reason. Um, uh, yeah, and I mean, after the script stage, Raymond didn't have an awful lot in, of involvement. I mean, he saw the animatic and the storyboard, obviously. But it wasn't until the later stages. We showed him little clips now and then. Um, and uh, he was involved when we, I, I believe you know about the McCartney connection now. And he, he came, we met Paul McCartney in 2014. Uh, and do, do you know how that came about? Fungus Bogeyman. Fungus Bogeyman, yes, well done. <laughs> uh, it was on McCartney too. He did a, um, uh, yeah, it was one of the tracks. And um, and talking to Paul McCartney, and he had so many connections with Ray Raymond uh, growing up. You know, they're not they're about 10 years difference between them. But uh, his dad was also an auxiliary fireman in, in the war. Uh, and um, you know, we talked about the mangle, and uh, Paul was saying how him and his brother Mike used to try and s squeeze old '78 records through the mangle without breaking. You know, just little things like this that really bonded us together. And uh, we were with him for about three quarters an hour, which, as you know, is precious time in this world. And uh, and two years later, we we kept pursuing it and pursuing it. And um, Raymond and Paul exchanged lots of very funny emails, uh, which I have copies of. Um, and eventually came up with this wonderful track that uh, is at the end of the film, which blends beautifully with Carl Davis's uh, orchestration. Uh, so, what more could you want for? Uh, what a, a cherry on the cake, isn't it? What more could you want from the guy picking up the book in a shop and wondering, oh, will anyone do this? Yes. What, what do you think of the answer? Oh, wow, yes. I mean, I can't believe we've reached this stage. We're having a crew screening this afternoon. Uh, uh, I've said a few tears will be shed because, um, you know, these things don't come around very often. And uh, uh, let's, let's hope it gives a boost to hand-drawn animation in in Britain again, you know, because uh, there hasn't been one of these films for, I don't know, well, well nigh on 30 years, and so I, I, I don't know the exact last one that was done. Um, it's been half hour short, but no features, so... Uh, it, it, I think we've proved that it can be done, and, and hopefully people will want to watch these kind of films, this kind of sensitive film. There's another one out hopefully later, that might have adopted this red turtle, which uh, I saw recently. It's within that same sensitive genre. You know, you don't have to do these blockbusters uh, necessarily. <laughs> Thank you to Roger Mainwood, discussing his film Ethel and Ernest, which is out in UK cinemas this Friday. And we also are hearing from the art director, Robin Shaw. Now, Robin, we had on... Back in the early days of the podcast, he was one of the people talking about the snowman and the snow dog. I believe one of the things that really kind of brought him on for that was his kind of natural uh, ability to do those very complex 360 camera angles, but in 2D, um, rotating shots. 
he did the Iron Brew parody of the Snowman. Do you remember that one? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what got him the gig uh, huh. of the Snowman and the Snow Dog. And I think it's something he, he he claims never to have told Raymond, even through working on The Snowman and the Snow Dog, that he did that particular film. But he's a guy who grew up watching The Snowman and obviously fell in love with it and has dedicated his life, really, to the the work of, of Raymond Briggs. This is his, his kind of dream job, I would say. Um, I've been working closely with Lupus and with... Uh, uh, with with Robin and the team on an exhibition that's uh, going on at the Arts University Bournemouth from the 14th of November and that called Reanimating uh, the Snowman. Uh, and so uh, Robin's been quite generous with his time and his material that I've been putting together for that exhibition. But he's been sharing some stories about the uh, the making of the snowman and the snow dog and the reasons that he got into it. And uh, he's now working on... Um, we're going on a bear hunt. He's directing that with uh, Joanna Harrison, who was one of the original animators at TVC who worked on The Snowman. So, yeah, yet again, another perfectly cast uh, animation uh, person to work on, uh, Ethel and Ernest. He was the art director, so responsible for keeping that kind of Briggsian style throughout uh, the film, which the film does employ CG, uh, particular for the house, but f- in no moment during the film did I feel I was watching CG with 2D plastered over it. You know that when you sometimes get it where they're completely separate and it's quite jarring? Yeah. It worked really well in this film, didn't it? That was very well blended, yeah. I think to a lot of people, they it wouldn't even... I mean, certainly people not plugged into the animation world and its processes, it wouldn't even register. Hmm. That they were sort of from different production pipelines. They would, you know, it was a pretty seamless, consistent style. So certainly, I think he's more than succeeded in keeping that consistent. So should we hand it over to Robin Shaw? Here's Robin, ladies and gentlemen. I first heard that it was in the offing um, quite some time ago, probably about seven, eight years ago, and I positively stalked Roger. Um, interestingly. Roger gave me my very first job in animation, from which I was sacked, I have to say. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> but not because of Roger. Roger wanted to keep me on. It was to do with a, a, a line producer at the time. But, you know, I probably deserved it. It, it was just, they let me go. Um, but I've since got a lot better since <laughs> But anyway, so, so I know Roger for, from, from TVC days. And uh, and then um, I, I as soon as I heard that he was he was doing Ethel and Ernest, I I got in touch with uh, Ruth and Camilla, I got in touch with him, and I I found out every possible way of getting in touch with uh, with him. I, lo- I looked him up on 192.com, found out his address, his phone number, email address, badgered and badgered and badgered and badgered. I was so determined to get to uh, see Roger, uh, especially as I hadn't seen him in, in quite some time. Um, and uh, because I, I wanted I wanted the job as art director on Ethel and Ernest. It, it, would, it was my dream job and uh, still is. For that film, for that project, Ethel and Ernest, based on that book, uh, art director was really my, my dream job. And then I got it. Well, 
Congratulations. Maybe <laughs> tell us a little bit about the tra translating that, that book uh, into into animation. It's quite a unique look for an art director to try and translate. Quite a few decisions have to be made. Um, well, yeah. Obviously, you start with the book, yeah, with, with which uh, you know something we have a lot of experience with now. Um, but you look at the minutiae of the book. You look at how 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 the design of the book is so tied up with the, with the storytelling. You cannot take any anything by Raymond Briggs and go away and just make any old film of it. Just turn it into something that it isn't because. The look of Raymond's work is entirely tied up with the storytelling. He will use soft lines, soft line work, soft colours, pale colours, stronger colours, depending on what is being told in the story at any one time. Um, and then you have to try and work, work out, your initial thing is, his job is how to try and work out how to translate into something which is ultimately automatable for production purposes because an animator has got to be able to replicate line work that you design and um, colorists have got to be able to replicate uh, a system of coloring and uh, the compositors especially when you've got such a tight schedule and a pipeline to force everything through the compositors have got to know exactly how they can colour the characters, the backgrounds, everything, uh, add lighting. Um, so that's the first job. And um, the, 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 way, the, way we, um, the way I came up with was, okay, we can't have lots of extra matte layers to draw for different patches of lighting or colour hues. Um, everything, so we decided um, early on that everything was going to come from the line work. So when we, the animator's character, which is quite, you know, they're quite complex characters, very complex characters in terms of line work, much more line work than you get in the average animated character. Um, <clears throat> so I took the, the, the character line work and drew as much information from that as possible and, and made mats and masks that could, we could then use to affect the colour to add hues, extra hues and tones and light and shade that would replicate the kind of light touch that Raymond has in his illustrations in the book with little dabs of watercolour, little dabs of this, dabs of ink or even the odd, even the odd loose bit of line work that, that would normally be cleaned up out of the final image. Um, the next job uh, was how to translate uh, what is ultimately the third character in the book, the third most important character in the book, not Ethel, not Ernest, but the house, the house they live in. That house, you know, as Raymond says at the end of the film, they were, I'm not sure he still does it, might have been cut the line, <laughs> but they were there for 41 years. And um, the house grows around them, it changes, uh, it fades. Uh, the weather changes, um, plants grow in the garden, neighbours move in, neighbours move out. Um, that house is the third character. So we have to work out how we can make that character, how we can give that character presence in the film. 
how we can make it feel like there's space around them, living spaces, and how we translate. And one, actually, one thing that happens in the film that you don't get in the book is linking, linking of one room to another. In the book, they're always in this room or that room or that room, the scullery, the kitchen, the living room, the bedroom. It's how we link those rooms as well. So we see from one space that you see in the book through into another space, and we get certain lighting pools. Uh, some, something uh, that uh, our assistant editor uh, said to us, which was very nice, was that um, with all of the shots, he can, he can imagine what time of day it is. So we'll be, we've got loads of shots where, in, where they're in what they call the kitchen, which is where the dining table is, and where the kitchen range used to be. Um, loads and loads of shots in there, but they have different moods in them depending on the season, on the time of day, or what's going on in the story. So there's all sorts of little subtleties like that to work out as well, um, uh, to do with lighting and tone. Um, what else? Uh, in in putting the backgrounds together, I decided very early on that what we should do is come up with that whole series of textures, so for wallpaper, for carpet, for flooring, for doors, for, for ceilings, lampshade, everything, everything should have a texture that can be brought in and put into place, fitted into place for all of the layouts. For not only for labour saving, but also for consistency. So uh, that way we don't end, spend up, end up spending weeks and weeks and weeks doing the same pattern on, the, on, on wallpaper hundreds of times. Uh, what, else? what else, what else? It also means that we can spend more time, because we've got all the basics in place, more time lighting those backgrounds rather than painting them to start with. Uh, what else? What else? Uh, oh, there's, a, there's a, one of my my favourite uh, backgrounds is 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 the very last shot of the film actually where we see a pullback from the pear tree. There'll be so much that people won't notice, um, but the layout I did for that is completely is of is of the back view of their house, and you see all the neighbours' houses. And it's a marked contrast. If you actually look at the two, two images, it's a marked contrast what's going on in the backs of the other houses from what you saw, uh, what you see earlier on in the film, where you've got, um, we've got uh, uh, fly blinds, you know, plastic fly blinds, multicolored fly blinds, uh, or, uh, you know, corrugated uh, uh, PVC, um, you know, clear plastic PVC shelter built on the back of a front door. Uh, uh, one room that we never see in, in, in their house is the outdoor toilet which is next to the scullery. A uh, few doors up, I've got the door open and we see inside the toilet and of course it's never used because the people who, who've moved in there, they've got all inside plumbing, they've got all their central heating, they don't use the outside toilet anymore. Um, There's a lot of it actually, a lot of it I, I could draw on from my own childhood. I, 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 I sort of grew up in large part between my home uh, with my mum, my dad and, and my nans and between the two of those two homes uh, I got a real insight in, into that kind of up, 
upbringing, a, a um, sort of quite normal working class upbringing with an out, outside toilet. When I was a kid, we had an outside toilet. We didn't have a bathroom. We did, yeah. It was all it was all very much like that. And 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 my my nan used a lot of the language that Ethel and Ernest used. So so it it's uh, in that way it's very very personal project for me as well. Easy, easy to translate them when you when you're dealing with London and, and, and the kind of people of London at the time. Oh, oh, definitely. That, actually, that was one thing that that was quite a struggle actually because um, I grew up in London and I, I, you know, I know I sort of understand the visual world of London without t trying to sound uh, without wanting to sound at all pretentious but probably succeeding. Um, I, I know what London looks like, I just do. I, I, the way we do brickwork in London is completely different from other countries. I was in Copenhagen recently, I was looking at the brickwork there, I'm a bit of a geek about brickwork. Um, and the brickwork in Copenhagen is totally different. And uh, so we, we had a lot of layouts being done, uh, most of the layouts being done in Luxembourg at Studio 352. I had a fantastic team there. But I had to sort of really explain to them how your average terraced house in London was constructed with your, with your bay window and, uh, and your two windows up top and, uh, or three and, uh, and, uh, and the sort of coping bricks at the top which are often a different colour from the, the, the general uh, brickwork on the walls which are always done in Victorian houses using Flemish bond uh, pattern which, which I just nagged them and nagged them about until they got it right, where you get long brick, short brick, long brick, short brick, and it's staggered like that. That's Flemish bond. And uh, which bits should be, you know, painted white, which bits should be, it's all a bit like that. The construction of sash windows, I got so geeky about it. I looked at diagrams, sent them diagrams. This is how you do a sash window, Victorian sash window. Um, so yeah, quite an awful lot of detail, even down to things like, uh, one thing that Camilla, uh, the, the executive producer, noticed after the film was finished was that there's a scene in, uh, there's a, scene in a cafe when uh, Raymond is, is, is talking about how uh, Jean, his wife, is uh, schizophrenic and how they're not going to have children. Um, there's a luncheon voucher sticker on the wall, uh, on the window. And Camilla noticed that after the film was finished and she came, she came up to me, she said she loved the, the luncheon vouchers sticker. But that's such a sort of period detail, which I, I remember when I first started work, you go into cafes, there'll be LV for luncheon vouchers all over the place, stuck on cafe windows or even in shops. Um, just little details like that, trying to pepper the film with. Um, I think Raymond really appreciates things like that as well. He always points at a, at a, a little detail that he spotted. Robin Shaw there, art director for Ethel and Ernest. Not a film to be missed. As we mentioned before, it's going to be a big Christmas special on our TV screens, but if it's playing near you, it's really worth checking it out in all its sort of, you know, full screen cinematic glory, especially if you like your animation. It's a wonderful film to kind of gaze at and appreciate in that respect. That is very often I, I appreciate a reason I put forward for going to see animated films in the cinema. Yeah. it's It's got the squiggly seal of approval. I'm sat here nodding. So I'm sure it would have been heartbroken if it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there was ever a chance that it wouldn't, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it'd be interested to hear what people think about it as well. 
uh, when, when it's released this Friday. I certainly enjoyed the film and I hope people go and enjoy it themselves in the cinemas. And as mentioned before, there's a fantastic blog that director Roger Mainwood maintains. It can be found at ethelandernestmovie.wordpress.com. And I think that wraps up episode 61, so thank you for joining us. Here's a little roundup of plugs to go out on. Regular podcast listeners would have got my not-too-subtle hints that the Manchester Animation Festival is coming back on the 15th, 16th and 17th of November at home in Manchester. This week, we've announced some new additions to the lineup. We'll have Philip Hunt from Studio AKA presenting a masterclass. We'll also be doing a Studio AKA retrospective featuring Grant Orchard's fantastic A Morning Stroll, Mark Krast's wonderful work, including Jojo and the Stars and Varmints, and Mr. Hunt's Lost and Found. And as if that were not enough, we've also managed to secure a rare preview screening of Claude Barris's Annecy Cristal winning My Life as a Courgette, which we're massive fans of here on Squiggly. So for a rare chance to see that, you want to get yourself up to Manchester in November. Festival passes, tickets and a full lineup are available over on the website, which is manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. And if you're in the Manchester area and you can't wait until the festival, well, remember, remember the 5th of November because the Waterside in Sale will be hosting a special Meet the Puppet Masters event, uh, following on from their successful event that they hosted last year as they launch a brand new exhibition called Meet the Puppet Masters with Ardman Studios, which features puppets and artwork from Ardman. Speaking of the event are Merlin Crossingham, Brian Cosgrove, Barry Purvis and Sean Harrison. So some absolute legends of uh, stop motion and prosthetics there. And you can find out more about that particular event and how long everything's going on for at the Waterside at watersideartcentre.co.uk. Some film screenings for my film Clem and Throw. Between now and the next episode, the film will see its final stops on the short film nights tour it's been taking it all over Switzerland this Friday 28th. The programme goes to Le Show de Fond at the Cinema ABC starting at 8pm. The following night it'll play at Neuchâtel at the Cinema Studio, also at 8pm, with its very last date the Friday after on November 4th, and that's in Lausanne at the Pathé Les Galeries starting at the earlier time of 7.15pm. More specifics at nuitducourt.ch. And I'd also like to say thank you very much to the lovely folks at Short Film Nights. It's been wonderful to be involved. Bringing it back to October, here's one for our stateside listeners who might be in or near South Dakota. This Thursday, October 27th, the film is playing in the Sodak Motion Festival's Animation Competition. That kicks off at 6.30pm at the South Dakota Art Museum. Visit sodakmotion.com for more info there. Further down south this week, it's also screening at Brazil's Anima Mundi Festival in their Shorts 5 program. So if you're in Rio de Janeiro, you can swing by the screening today, October 26th at 6pm at the Livraria Cultura. Repeated Friday 28th, 3pm at the City Odeon. Saturday 29th, 5pm at the Cidade das Artes. And Sunday 30th, 6pm back at the City Odeon. And in November, Anima Mundi moves on to Sao Paulo, well, there'll be two more Shorts 5 screenings at the Cinemateca Brasileira, 6pm November 4th and 3pm November 5th. And you can find all the info you need on the festival at animamundi.com.br. One more and I'll shut my yap. This is also on November 5th. You can see Cleman Throw at the Kuandu International Animation Festival in Taiwan. It's in the program KDIAF's Choice 5 at 9 in the morning. And for this website, you might need a pen, kdiaf.tnua.edu.tw. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks again to Roger Mainwood and Robin Shaw for talking to us. You can catch Ethel and Ernest in cinemas from this Friday, the 28th. To keep up to speed with squiggly goings-on, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. Squiggly itself is at Squiggly. And the website is Squiggly.com. Also, Squiggly Animation on Instagram. Squiggly Magazine on Facebook. We're everywhere. And if you ever want to get in touch with anything regarding the site or the industry or the podcast or anything that crosses your mind, don't be shy. We're always keen to hear from you. But until the next episode, happy animating.